Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for and about conscious leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. This podcast is a deep dive into personal growth, spirituality, self-help, psychology, creativity, all the things you need to connect with your inner wisdom so that you can be the leader you want to see in the world. Our guest is Johnny Barefoot. Johnny is a singer-songwriter. He's a multi-instrumentalist and a children's music teacher from Toronto living in Japan. His passion is to hear the music in every aspect of his life. And I'm going to add that Johnny and I know each other from our younger years. I believe the last time we saw each other in real life was when we were still in our teens, <laughs> maybe in our 20s, quite some time ago. And we reconnected over social media. And I love the timing because you've written and released a new album. Yes, I have. I would love to talk about the new album and some of its roots. But even before, I would love for you to share a little bit of what brought you to Japan a very long time ago. We came here in 97, when I say we, myself and my wife. At the time, I wasn't really doing much of anything that resembled anything like a career. I had a great job. I was working at this really cool tool store down on Queen Street West called Atlas Machinery. And that was a really cool job, as jobs go. And also, I was playing in a few bands and doing sound engineering in some clubs downtown. And I suppose any of those things could have blossomed into something else or something a little bit longer lasting. Who knows? The music certainly has been longer lasting. But when my wife had finished university, she had a big bunch of student loans to pay off. And we had a few friends who went this route. They came to Japan or Korea, Far East, to teach English and get in some travel and that sort of thing and make some money and pay off their student loans. So when my wife had finished university, she decided to to do that. And my band that I was in at the time, Temper, that was the name of the band, we had broken up. And um, we're all still friends. It was a, it was an amicable split. And it was like, we just thought, this isn't really working out. Why don't we just, why don't we just dissolve? And we did. We came to Japan. And in summer of 97, and we were living way out in the countryside, actually, and doing all kinds of really neat stuff, finding out lots about Japanese culture, because it was really rural where we were in Ehime Prefecture on the island of Shikoku. So it was out in the countryside, made lots of great friends, met lots of people from around the world. My wife's originally from the Philippines, too, so we were close to there, so we can travel there. And we did a bunch of other traveling as well, which is one of my passions. We originally decided to stay just for three years, but three years went by really quickly, and we got cats and commitment we can't we've got a commitment (laughs) now we can't (laughs) just up and leave we have cats and then we had a and so we stayed a little while longer and we kept telling people back in canada okay three more years three more years three more years that sort of thing and then we had a son we we started having you know children and then when we had their son we thought let's move up to tokyo because it'll be more 
cosmopolitan, a wider view of the world, and they might be more accepting of a foreign child if we stay long enough for him to go to school and that sort of thing, because where we were was pretty conservative, so um, very provincially minded kind of thing. So we thought, let's give our child a, a wider future. So and then we moved up to Tokyo, and uh, the place that we moved to, the job that we moved into didn't really quite work out, although it was a shift of gears, because we were just teaching English conversation at the time, but I was teaching teaching children more than adults and older school children, mostly kindergarten age and that sort of thing, using a lot of music in the classes and that. And uh, when we moved up here, it turned into uh, teaching in an English immersion preschool, but still doing more music. And then I found a music program for children age zero through six and their families, this uh, music program that's called Music Together. And when I found out about that, I went and did the training for that. And I thought, this is what I need to be doing. I love this. Mm. It's absolutely amazing. It's developmentally oriented and it's a lot of fun. That it's developmentally oriented is great as from a teaching standpoint as well as a learning standpoint. Because, and I had to relearn everything that I knew about education and teaching and all that, because it was like the first day of training, they said to us, one of the first things they said is, we're not actually going to teach anyone anything about music. You're not going to teach them music. And I thought, isn't this a music program? And that then don't, isn't that what we do? And they said, no, it's you facilitate development mm. is what you do. So you're giving the child and their family a musical experience wherein they can develop their natural musical abilities which we believe everyone has the ability to learn how to sing in tune and move in accurate rhythm. And given the, given the appropriate environment mm. to, to grow and develop, that can happen, especially with the involvement of the most important people in the child's life being the parents. So oh, wow. there's that. And then, so I did the training for that and I've been teaching that now for the past 12 years or so. And we moved up to Saitama. So now we're in Saitama, just north of Tokyo. Since we moved up to Tokyo, I met a whole bunch of other musicians, foreign musicians, Japanese musicians, and started playing at first just solo in clubs and started writing some more music. And then I met some other musicians that had a band called Jimmy Binks and the Shakehorns. And they asked me to play mandolin in their band. And, but I wasn't in the band more than one rehearsal. And then afterwards they said, do you play banjo? And I said, not yet. <laughs> so uh -huh. they went, and they said, here. And they gave me a banjo and said, and learn these songs. So I started to learn how to play banjo. So that's what happened there. And then I was, I was playing in Jimmy Binks and the Shakehorns, having loads and loads of fun. It's a wonderful group of people. And they already had a following in, in Tokyo. We had a great time over seven or eight years we were playing together. And then one of the founding members moved back to England because there were people from all over, people from the States, people from England, a couple people from Canada. And then one of the founding members moved back to England and we tried to replace them, but it just didn't work. Since then, I've released a solo album called A Different River about seven and a half years ago. And then over the years, I was writing more songs and two or three of the songs that are on the new record are, are from leftovers that didn't make it onto that mm. earlier CD. And then I found myself with loads of free time, of course, when COVID kicked in and I ended up sitting down and really working on the album. And then, and then I got it done. I want to talk about creativity in general mm -hmm. and, and in the time of COVID, but before we go there, 
I'm curious moving. So I, I was, because we're, I think almost exactly the same age. I, yeah. I'm hearing you call out the years in your journey. Yeah. And it struck me in 97, we were around 30. And just as you were going off to Japan, I was leaving the world of teaching and then went on my corporate journey. So mm -hmm. very divergent journeys. And I remember I would hear yeah. from our common friends, Teresa, Kevin, oh, not coming because the, the, <laughs> there would be a level of excitement about you returning. And then, oh, they're staying on for another three years. And then, oh, they're staying on. For, yeah. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah, I didn't was know there was that level of excitement. We probably yeah. would have you know, come back. Come <laughs> but back th then it was, oh, they're probably staying. They're probably staying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're never coming back. <laughs> you know, so that was my level of news through our, our common friends through grade school and high school. We both still have very close friends with people that we went to high school with. Yeah. In my case, some of them I went to grade school that are common friends who we haven't right. told that we're doing this, which is yeah. fun. Um <laughs> But I know what I know where you grew up and how you grew up and we went to Catholic schools and nuclear family. What was it like for you culturally to move from Toronto, which is a fairly cosmopolitan city? What was it like for you to to pick up and move? I moved to Western Canada and I found it very different. But this yeah. is a million other layers of different. Japan is a very different place. And it was mildly amusing at the best of times and just a complete load of weird at the worst of times because there were, because it's a completely different culture. That's something that I wasn't really aware of. You have ideas about what you think Japan is like or what you think the Far East is when you're growing up. And if when you're living in Canada, and if you don't know any, I think I knew uh, a few Japanese people in my social circle growing up in elementary school and high school and that. But when you come here and you're immersed in the culture and you don't speak the language like that, like thinking back to that recently, when was it? It was just over a year ago, actually, we took a trip and we stopped off in Korea on the way there and on the way back. And we were in the airport and I remember what it was like first moving to Japan and absolutely not knowing the language because we were walking around in the airport and I don't know any Korean, none, absolutely none. I know how to mm -hmm. say hello and that's it. And uh, trying to buy some food or just uh, talking to in, in the airport, if you're talking to people at the, the tourist desk or something, they're going to speak English and probably a, a few other languages as well. But I remembered what it was like first coming to Japan, not knowing the language and just thinking how, how much I'm going to have to rely on friends or try to find people who will be able to support us from the beginning, just socially. And uh, it, it was weird. Like just to, to experience that for the first time. I remember saying to a, uh, a friend before we left as well, thinking this is going to be a really big test on the things I think about life, like how I think my life is and what I think is going to happen as I grow. Because going to high school and you have close friends and everything, but everyone generally thinks the same sort of thing. And even in the, even as you branch out and become an adult, 
I guess you leave a high school and you go to college or, or you end up going out and getting a job and you meet people that you didn't grow up with or people that didn't grow up in the same neighborhood as you. You're beginning to meet different people and you're slowly building your circle of experience. It's But it's still generally the same thing. And I thought this is going to be a, a really huge test on what I think life is about. And of course, when you're in your 20s, you think you, you you have some pretty solid ideas about what you think life is about. And and I did. But then I thought, I'm going to be stepping out of all this and going to a place that is totally foreign, meeting people that grew up not only in Japan, but in different other different countries as well. And I, it, all my ideas will be put to the test. And they were. And I think I, I think I'm pretty much the same person, only my ideas are more solidified than before and others have softened and become wider or changed as well. So yeah, it was, it's been, it's been an incredible ride. That's for sure. What are a couple of the prominent or dominant differences between North American culture as you left it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and still, I'm sure, very familiar with it through all your interactions with family and friends yeah. and where you are now. We grew up Catholic, right? And there was there were a lot of that was always there, like going to church on Sundays in schools and everything. There's prayers and things that go on. But it always seemed to me that there was never really a general sense of a spiritual connection. It was always mm-hmm. just rote. There were people that, that you meet are, who are more devout, but... Generally, I think most people just sort of went through the motions. And here, though, in Japan, spirituality is much more ingrained in the fabric of society. You look around anywhere you travel, anywhere in Japan, you'll find these little shrines called jizo um, that are just on the side of the road. And there's a little statue, a little stone statue of a person a monk or something and a little sometimes a little sort of structure a little kind of hut that almost like the size of a doghouse kind of thing like very small and there's a little maybe a little glass of sake that somebody would have left there and you'll see these all over the place but what else is even more interesting about this about these things is children walking by on their way to school will stop and just they'll be walking by talking to their friends and then just stop and have a little prayer and then go on their way. And then, and grownups as well, as they're going by their, about their day, they'll stop and again, have another little prayer. And there's shrines all over the place as well. And these are the Jizo and the shrines are Shinto. And Shinto, I've found out, is an indigenous spiritual, I don't want to call it a religion because it is a way of life. It's ingrained mm-hmm. in the society. It's just the indigenous spiritual way of Japan. It's been framed as a religion for like Western kind of purposes in that, like, I think it was after the second world war, the, uh, the American occupation mandated that it be separated from the state because that was what, where a lot of the problems came from with Imperial Japan of the first world war and second world war is that the Shinto way is so ingrained in the society that you can't tear it out of the Japanese psyche, but mm. you can, in a Western sort of way, separate it from state. And, and then the, so they gave the emperor less power. But even then, because it is really ingrained, everyone goes to the shrine on New Year's Eve um, or New Year's Day 
and visits than that sort of thing. It's like going to church on Christmas. But yeah, like everyone does it. And another thing I found too is when you do mention something, like we were going to church for a while here in Japan, and we've always been able to find a church. And when I would mention to somebody about not being able to do something because I had to go to church, or not being able to eat or drink something because I've given it up for Lent or something like that, Japanese people would largely just go, oh, okay. And just take it like that. Whereas I found in Canada, if you mentioned something like that to someone, they'd be like, what? Really? Re- I don't believe that. What, you go to church still and, and you can't do something because you go, there would be a debate or some kind of discussion that would ensue. But with Japanese people, it's just, oh, all right, no problem. And there was no, no second thought about it. And that's a large, that's a huge difference I've found between Japan and Canada. It's not always in Canada. There are people that are like, oh, okay, you got church, no problem. But, uh, but that's more the exception, I think, in my experience. Yeah, and even the fact that you think about here, the whole idea of separation of, of church from from state, to definitely understand and see that. Mm. And, and, the, and I'm thinking back to our own lives where, it's very, it is very separate. And it almost makes me now think it's it, the fact that it's that compartmentalized mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the most integrated way to show up. And you think of the, and I would call myself a lapsed Catholic. I don't go to church as a routine or ritual at this point. Right. But when big life events come, it's very present weddings, funerals, yeah. baptisms. So more the ceremonial aspect and it doesn't, I don't miss it. However, I wonder if I would, if I wasn't engaged in different kinds of spirituality now. Yeah, I would have to agree because there's been a few times, two or three times in my life where I've, for whatever reason, backed away from any kind of church going or any kind of regular practice. And that whatever the reason was that's what that's what would happen and then over time it would become habit forming my mom used to say you should always go to church even if you don't want to because if you stop if you don't go if you make an excuse then it's going to be easier to make an excuse again and then eventually you're just not going to go and that's precisely what happened a, a couple of times and but always not too long into the future of going through something like that, I feel something missing. Not that it's the habit of going to church every Sunday morning, but there's that. But I mean, that you rationalize through or whatever, but it's something deeper than that. For me, anyway, there needs to be that spiritual connection to something. And recently we stopped going to church for a couple of different reasons and and the same thing happened it's well the, there needs to be that kind of spiritual connection now i have that through music i find music to be intensely spiritual and there is a connection there through the music there's a connection to uh nature and a connection to with people just through performing the connection that i get through people that's why this past year has been really a drag in that I can't get out. The last gig I did was almost a year ago, was March 6th of last Mm. year. It's the last time I'd been on a train and down into Tokyo. And also it was the last gig that I played and not 
going out and playing in front of an audience that is responding. You can do the the online streaming thing, but it's not the same. It's rewarding in that I'm playing music for an audience and I'm playing music, which is what I love doing. And there is an audience there. I can see that people are commenting in that, but it, it's so sterile that it's just not the same thing. And there there isn't that authentic, palpable connection that I find through performance. But but back to what we were saying about spirituality. Yeah, there's something missing. Recently, I started thinking about Zen. A friend of mine recommended a, a book called Zen Guitar, which is a really wonderful book. And and I read that and it was, I always thought it was really cool. And Zen is, again, not a religion. It's a, a form of Buddhism. But Zen practitioners will tell you, Zen priests will tell you, it's not really a religion. It's more of a way mm -hmm. to, to live your life. And you could be a Zen Christian. You can be a Zen Jew. You can be a Zen anything. It would actually help, I feel, it would help you be a better Catholic or a better Jew or a better Muslim b believer. But by itself as well, it's been a very interesting path of reconnecting spiritually. And so are you practicing Zen meditation now? Have you taken on that as a practice? Yeah, I am. I've, I think maybe for the past two months or so at least. I was doing not every day. At first, I started doing it a, f a few months ago, maybe three or four months ago. I started doing it a, a few times a week when I found the time to do it just for five or 10 minutes. And then I found some online Zoom Zen sessions from a Zen temple to the south of Tokyo in Yokohama that was once every two weeks. They would have this thing at night from nine till 10. And they would be like, 20 minutes in a break and then 20 minutes in a talk. And that was neat because you're, you're doing it with people who are all over the world. There was mm -hmm. about a hundred, each time there was about a hundred people from anywhere in the world. But I was doing it more and for longer periods. And now I think maybe for at least the last couple of months, I've been doing it every morning. I've been finding it it's really nice to get up before everybody else is awake because I have two kids now and my wife is here as well. And then if I wake up at 5.30 in the morning, it's really quiet Your and time. it's great. Yeah, that's my time. So yeah, I'll get up and do some Zen sitting for like about a half hour every morning. And uh, it's, it's neat. <laughs> I, I don't know if you, did you ever hear my interview with, with Brad Warner? No, I don't think so. His book is called uh, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link afterwards. And I think part of my exploration in the recent three years has very much been through this podcast and the people who mm. I've had on. But as I'm listening, I'm, I'm reminded, I rarely have guests who are Catholic and it's because I grew, it's what I grew up in and I'm not yeah. all that curious about it. And it would be interesting to, to see if I could get curious about it in, in a different way. But for a long time, for me, spirituality has been separate from the church and it's not really judgment. It's just mm. that is how it evolved when I started to get connected through my creative desire, which was always evolving around photography. I see. And okay. when I, yeah. And so that's when I started to commune with nature more and get out into the world more and expand and ultimately led to moving to Kelowna in 2005 uh -huh. and having a few mortality checks along the way mm. really accelerated that for me. Like I wanted right. to see and do and feel 
differently. And it came back to becoming more of a practice of creative expression. The music, since I really owned my style in that I never really wanted to be a musician that sounded like anyone else. I never really sat down and said, okay, I'm going to sound exactly like Neil Young and I'm going to play these songs exactly like Neil Young and then I'm going to write music that sounds like Neil Young. Some people do that and that's fine. I've never been that that type of person. Perhaps it happened earlier on when I was younger. You have to try and sound like something before you know what you're going to sound like yourself. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I think around the time was when I was writing and recording a different river, I started to carve out a sound that I thought, this is good. This seems like me. And I'm really happy with these songs. And then I was really proud of that record when it came out. And then at that point, I thought, yeah, I think I'm really going to own this sound. Like, this is mine. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to let this grow inside me. And it was like a search was over. Some of the songs that are on the new record, uh, Sunrise in Reverse, they're leftovers from that project. And then the newer music that I wrote since then are along that same kind of vein, that same sort of songwriting. I feel it's authentically from me, from inside of me. So... It's really listening to myself, listening to what's going on inside me and how things resonate out from me and being happy and being content and being comfortable in that mode has really helped me to be creative and write music that I'm, that I like. That's one way that I think I've written a song that I, that would be, that I think is good in that if I play it or record it and listen back to it and think this would be music that I would want to listen to just sitting around. So that's a, that's a good sort of marker, but for your question, how do I feel spiritually about the music? And that, I think it's similar to you when you were thinking about uh, a connection to nature and that in your photography. For me, it's a reflection of the nature and the connection, my connection to nature and how that feels within me and how I express it musically. Whereas I feel like music is a bell for me, like bells are musical, but it's the way I, I resonate. It's the way I resonate how I like my connection, if that makes sense. The connection, the spiritual connection with the, with nature and people and feelings resonates within me and then comes out in the music. What you were describing as, you know, finding your style or coming home to your style there Hmm. is something caught my attention and it, it was you have to sound like something when you start mm-hmm. and that that makes me think of of genre so from the point of view of genre where would you how do you describe where your music fits folk i think in a broad sense folk but there's been a couple of friends that i've met here in tokyo that have given it more of a descriptive term listening to my music and then one one of my friends said it he thinks it's uh country soul was one description of my music and another one was progressive folk as opposed to like progressive rock or something like that but progressive folk i kind of like both of those labels but generally folk if you've got to have one, you got to Yeah, if I've got to have a label, you have to. I hate that. I don't, oh, I hate labels, man. But I do. That was one of those 20-something yeah. things. You yeah. can't label yeah. me. You can't label me, man. Labels. I hate labels. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, it's trying to pigeonhole me, man. What are you doing? But, but no, that's true. I would, I used to say to people, why don't you come and listen to me play and then decide for yourself? But people don't want to hear that. Because they're like, tell me what you sound like and maybe I'll come out and listen to you. 
And if I like um, that type of music. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you, you sound like James Taylor, okay, James Taylor's cool. I'll come out and listen to you or whatever. But so you have to tell people something. So yeah. But so you, yeah, but you need a label, but you also start out playing the things or emulating the things that you hear. I heard a lot of folk. My earliest memory was Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Not, mm-hmm. not my earliest musical memory, but my earliest memory is listening to that album. My whole life has been, there's been a lot of folk music in there. So that's naturally what I'm, I think you're naturally going to end up playing that. Had it been funk, I would be playing that. Had it been heavy metal, I'd be playing that. I heard a lot of that, that those yeah, I was gonna types say, of music you didn't as laugh well. for exposure to that. Well, yeah. But I heard lots of different types of music, but I think, I don't know, my, my filter is folk. What was it? Uh, Stephen King said, like, why people have asked him, why do you write horror um, stories? And he said, because that's what my filter lets through. People have a filter. And some people filter through romance novels. Some people filter through jazz or whatever is from a musical perspective. I filter through folk music. And no matter how much I try listening to other styles of music, perhaps they'll make the holes in my filter different and it'll let through different parts of those music. But it's always going to be a folk filter. What's your process like when you sit down to create either a song or an album? Do you start with the bigger picture first? Do you hone in on a particular sound, a scene, Um, when you talked about nature? The album come together as the songs are coming together. But the songs, really writing a song for me, I have to remain open to the ideas, to things coming at me. And it's funny, sometimes I feel a song coming on. And when that happens, I do really try to remain open and think, oh, that was weird. Oh, write it down. Or that's an interesting thing. I'd never looked at that that way before. And oh, write it down. And then sometimes too, when I'm waking up in the morning, a line will come to me and I'll get up and write it down on a piece of paper. Like that sort of thing. Sometimes it drives my family nuts too. And I'll come home and I'll come through the door and then just tell everybody, shut up, don't talk, don't say anything to me, quiet. And they're like, what? What? (laughs) Give me a pen and a piece of paper. (laughs) But so now since I have my phone, it's it's fine because I can do it as I'm going. But I used to do that. I come home and it's like, quiet, give me a pen and and I'll write it down. And they're like, why? Just shush. I'll explain after. And I'll write it down. Okay, now we can talk. Because I had a line in my head that if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget it and it'll be gone forever. No matter how simple I think it is. If I think, oh, I'll remember that. No problem. I don't need to write it down now. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And then, so you write it, you have to write it down. Otherwise you're going to forget. And 95% of that goes in the trash, but sometimes there'll be something that sticks. And for me, the, the best songs that I write are ones that I write all the lyrics in one go. I'll sit down and write the entire song in in one sitting. And usually, once I start, the words just pour out of the pen. Other songwriters have said, like Neil Young, I, I've, I've heard that he said that writing songs for him, and Van Morrison is another guy too, it's like turning on a radio. You turn on a radio, you tune in the station, and the song happens. Mm. And that's how they feel. I feel the same way when the songs are good. If I really have to work at it, Maybe it's a good song. Maybe other people will like it, but I won't like it as much as other songs that just pour out of the pen. Mm -hmm. Like I opened 
a, a, a part of the fabric of space and time and found something just waiting there. And then, and then I'll write the whole thing down. And at, usually as I'm writing, the melody will present itself as well. And then the melody will flesh out as I'm finishing the, the lyrics. And then I'll apply chords to the melody. I joined a workshop that involved daily writing and mm -hmm. I wasn't able to maintain daily the entire time. But in front of my eyes, I saw albums written. I saw paintings like this all from around the world. Yeah. And, uh, and so now I've taken that and all of the things that I learned about how can I make this go a little smoother for myself? And I know exactly like what your mom said to you. If I allow myself to miss a day, missing the next day is easier and missing the next day is easier. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading recently because I'm, I'm doing the Zen sitting every morning, but also reading some other Zen books, more modern books. One of them is uh, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind, which is a, a very popular book amongst Zen circles of a, one of the most prominent Zen monks and uh, someone who was very instrumental in starting Zen up in the States back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And uh, But he says, and also Dogen, who is the guy who brought Zen to Japan back in like the year 800 or year 600, oh, a long time ago anyway. But they're like, when you don't want to do it, when you are having a really hard time doing your Zen practice or trying to write regularly or anything that you're trying to do like that regularly, I think those are the most important days to do it. And you can learn a lot about yourself if you examine why you're thinking about it being, you having a hard time to do it on those particular days. Yeah. Like, why is it such a struggle? Like some days for me, I'll sit down, breathe a few breaths in, out, and just calm myself. And before I know it, 30 minutes has passed. Other days, it's just drudgery. My mind is racing. Everything is going all over the place. I can't control my mind at all. And it's weird. It's like, where are all these thoughts coming from? And what is going on? Why am I thinking all this? What? The, where the hell did that come from? How come I can't stop thinking about this thing that I'm doing next week or whatever? And then it's at those times where you have to stop, bring yourself back, breathe a little bit and go, okay, why exactly? Why am I not able to to what is it about this situation right now that's making this so difficult? And it's a perfect time for reflection and to figure out why it's that difficult. So it's at those times that it is most important to keep at it. I have a community that I'm a part of, and I want to bring this to um, the Free Your Inner Guru community. I'm working towards that in the coming months where I, I went and I wrote about my experience and it was because there's a bunch of us in there having a daily practice. And we, I mm. wrote about it. And while I was writing about what had just happened, I realized that I had been receiving emails from people who respond. And that is so re rewarding when mm. someone says, thank you. Because what I'm trying to do is write through story and stop being so prescriptive. My years of being a coach and being overly exposed in the self-help world, everybody's I just so tired of being told what to think. And so now my thought is 
that by simply telling the story behind why. And one of the reasons revisiting The Alchemist that I think we both had, because we were yeah, like, yeah. ah, let's talk about The Alchemist, which we haven't talked about at all. Not at all. <laughs> I was just, I was just about our, to mention that. Actually. Here's our cue. This is what we connected over. This would have been the beginning of 2019. Mm. I posted rereading The Alchemist and every year it's different. And you're like, oh, I love that book. And that's how our reconnection started. Read it for the first time, actually. Oh, cool. when, when, when When you saw that, when you saw that, I said I, I had read it and I, I posted, I think it was one of those post 10 books that you love, Facebook yep. things. And The Alchemist was in there. And it was one of those books that I'd heard about a lot. And at, at one point, I think... I have this thing, like if I hear about something like two or three times in a very short span of time from completely different sources, I should probably look into that. And that might be a byproduct of, of remaining open for songwriting. Whereas if I hear about something, it's like, oh, I heard that before or that. Sometimes it's just a word that I'll hear, a new Japanese word that I don't know, that I that I don't understand yet. And I'll just notice a word like in regular conversation. It'll, pop up two or three different times. I'm like, why am I hearing this word? Why am I even noticing this word? Or in this case, it's a book. And I thought, and in okay, the well, alchemist, I, they would call that an omen, right? They Paying would. attention yeah. to the omens. Yeah. That's, well, that's it. Pay attention to the omens. And being, I think being a songwriter, I can afford myself, I don't know, maybe paying attention to the omens are, is a little bit sharper because I do that. I, I make that my business because, because it's good for writing songs. I want to remain open to things because I want to be able to write songs about stuff. So that was, yeah. So The Alchemist, I thought, well, I'm going to have to read this book now. I read it every year and not always on the dot, but I've been reading it the last week or so. Mm -hmm. And this time, because I've flagged and you see all the different colors, they're from different years. That's and Oh, nice. Yeah. And so this year's flags, I've been going through and noticing one of the things I loved about it and always said... I would love to take the time to reflect on the pearls of wisdom contained within the alchemist. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm writing, I'm seeing it's a huge metaphor for all things spiritual and, and yeah. workings of the world and intuition yeah. and the way that it's written by Paulo Coelho mm -hmm. is the nuggets are just woven within the narrative. It yeah. never stops to say, to draw the conclusion for you right. or tell you anything. It's just revealed within it. And I was like, oh, it explains to me, I think, why it's resonated yeah. so widely beyond yeah. the message. And that's what I realized. That's what I'm trying to do in my own. It feels very primitive right now. But what stopped me yesterday, just to close the loop on that, was a few people had emailed me back thanking me and saying that it either inspired them or pointed something out. And, and that's exactly what I'm going for. But I sat down yesterday. I was like, okay, how am I going to inspire people today? That's cool. And that just closed it right off. That's really cool. The thing that I think I find inspiring about, about you doing the writing every day and being in the group and being the uh, people who are doing the daily writing and doing your blog and sending it out with on an email group and that sort of thing is for me, whenever I start anything like that, I'm, I'm hesitant to tell people about it because I don't want to have to explain why I stopped because up to this point, 
there's been, or there's still stuff that, that I've started that I haven't finished yet. I don't want to have to go through the embarrassment or the shame of saying, no, I didn't do it. Sorry. But then why do I have to explain that to someone else? Or why should I feel bad that, that I started something and I didn't get it done yet? But yet, that's it. I didn't get it done yet. But so anyway, it's really inspiring too, that you can, that you're like, you're, this is something that you're struggling with and something where that you find difficult to do at times, other times much easier, I'm sure, but you're finding the whole experience rewarding and you're sharing it with the larger, with the world. Thank you. And, but also know that this is that I have restarted this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it, and this is, I, I think the tripping and falling on it has been just as important and certainly, yeah, I totally get shame as one of my Achilles heels. It is for everyone, but mm. that, and it can be a bit of a motivator for sure. Yeah. But the journey of the last year, and I think juxtaposed on top of all of the limitations of COVID. And for me, I'm so, no, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not grateful for COVID, but I'm grateful for the lens <laughs> that it gave me to look at my life and realized that some of the emotions that I was going through on a daily or weekly basis were things A, I didn't enjoy, B, were a total waste of time, C, were not getting me to the objective, and B, were creating a sense of disconnection, not connection. And they dropped away, yeah. leaving space to, to connect with people in a different way and yeah. realize that not everyone wants to connect that way, but creatives do. Mm. or a lot of creatives do. And that has helped with with mental health, emotional health, feelings of connection or disconnection, and opened up an opportunity to, instead of just being off in my own little world where I'm quite comfortable, turning some of that outwards and, and realizing that I'm better for it. And hopefully the idealist in me for if what I'm doing is bringing either entertainment, education in entertainment, humor, or empathy to someone else in a day, it's worth it. It starts in me and what it does in the world is once I release it, it's out of my hands. Yeah. But you're saying it starts in you, like you have to find some, some worth in it. You have to find some enjoyment in it or think it's worth doing before you can let it loose on the world. That's how I feel about music as well, in that I have to like it before I can let it free, before I can, you know, finish it and then and let people listen to it like i've met other songwriters who have been like sometimes i'll write a song even if i don't like it i have to finish it because i think maybe someone will like it and i think that's an admirable point of view but i don't i don't know what that's like to feel like that i can't do that i've never been able to do that Mm -hmm. but so yeah what you're saying is like being able to create something and but I think you have to, it's something that you enjoy. Do you have, you have to be secure within yourself, relaxed within yourself and to be able to let that grow and then release it. I would you say, know? I'm going to qualify that and say, it's a journey. And this is where I think the alchemist comes back into it. But this is about finding, following your heart and follow, finding your connection to the soul of the world. Right? Yeah. There's a language of the alchemist, that the soul of the world, the language of the world, and realizing that everyone has a part to play. Mm-hmm. So when I see something like this, where in the alchemist, 
there's a character who wants to be an alchemist and in the true meaning of the sense word he wants yeah. to be able to t- turn lead copper anything metal into but that's his driving force is just to be able to do that yeah he's he's studied so much and and spent so much of his life just to be able to do that but alchemy in the story at least anyway is so more that's what i got from it this time is like a, no matter how many times I've stepped off of the path, what always brings me back around is the link to photography. So the way that I've, I'm, that's happening now is every day I'm choosing one of my images that has mm. sat on a hard drive, some of them for 15, 16 years, though yeah. nobody's ever seen them. I've never really brought them up to their best potential. And sometimes in that process, the, photo- the photo will come first and then the words so yeah. it's like this back and forth. But if I try to be a writer like Seth Godin, that's whose mm-hmm. workshop I was in. And he's there's a wonderful conversation a few episodes back where he pretty much, I talked to him about this feeling of feeling worthy before you you put it into the world. And he's been blogging daily for 11 years. He's wow. got an audience of millions and millions of people. Mm. And he just stopped me right in my tracks and was like, that's not why you do it. You don't do it for what other people think. You mm. do it because you made the decision to do it. And for him, mm. it's as simple as that. It's, I don't have to decide every day if, I'm gonna, if there's going to be a blog. It's my practice that there is. So all of the uh, energy, all of the sweat of, am I going, what am I going to blog about today? What am I going to release today? What are, is it going to happen today? Is it not going to happen today? It's just foregone conclusion that it will. And some of them are, are not great. I'm having an extreme aha moment in that, that when he says it's the practice, it's what he does. It's like... Zen meditation that I've been doing every day. It's the practice. It's what you do doing your blog or talking about your photography. For me, writing music or teaching, teaching music as well. Like sometimes there are days when every single note that comes out and every single activity that I'm doing in the class is a struggle and the kids are just going against absolutely everything that I'm trying to do. And then I realized afterwards my focus was completely wrong in that I was trying to do something and not just doing things, right? And when you're trying to do it a certain way and you have an idea of what it's supposed to be like, then that's the wrong way of looking at it. But just going in saying, we're going to have a musical experience. You're going to experience it maybe in a completely different way than I am. You're going to come up with ideas that Mm -hmm. I would never even thought of before. And sometimes those are the best classes that I have where I go in and I have a, I have to have an idea about what I'm going to do, but I also have to be receptive and open to how, because I'm working with children, how they're going to behave in the experience. And I'll just let them go ahead and say, okay, let's do it this way. This song, I was thinking about sitting down and doing a small movement, mellow sort of kind of activity, but everyone's standing up. Let's all stand up and do it that way. And then everything is just completely different. But then I'll look back on it and say, that was one of the best classes I've had in a long time. Because then I have to think about the training. You go back to the basics and think, what did they? What was the first thing I remember them saying? We're not going to teach them something. Mm. We're going to... We're going to put 
the musical experience before the children and just see what happens and let them develop and grow. And if you approach it like that, it's like, I'm going to go and teach this class because that's what I do every day. And that's the practice. I'm going to sit Zen and I, that's what I do every day. And that's the practice. You're going to take pictures and you're going to look at your pictures and things and, and, or you're going to write your blog and whether it comes naturally and fluidly and flowingly, or it's a absolute drudgery, it's still what you do. Yep. Giving yourself permission to do those things, because if you get locked into a particular pattern, you do have to break yourself out of that. I'm not saying you, but one one does have to break oneself out of it. Are you trying to tell me yeah. what to do, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> no, Laura, you really ought to... No. <laughs> But that's like sometimes uh, my wife will be making dinner or doing the dishes or something. Mind you, our kids are old enough that they can do the dishes now. If I'm trying to write music, I don't feel bad about other people doing something else that maybe they don't want to be doing if I'm sitting down writing music. Maybe I should sometimes. But most of the time, most of, a lot of the time, I do give myself the permission to do that. And it was it's a rare occasion that I do spend a great deal of time doing that throughout the day. There's, there were a couple of times when we were not working, like my school had closed for a little bit during COVID when the state of emergency first happened almost a year ago mm-hmm. here in Japan. And when I really got down to starting to record the album, like really seriously, there were a couple of days where I got up, ate breakfast, came in here into this room, sat down right where I am, turned on the computer and played and recorded music. Until it was dark outside. And it was one of those things where I turn around and it's like, geez, it's dark already. What happened to that day? And then I just look at all the stuff that I had done and I'm like, wow, that was amazing. This, that mm. would be, that would be amazing to spend every day like this, like just sitting and writing and recording and playing music and someone would pay me for it. <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. There's a part of me that thinks, yeah, because that's the end goal with the writing and the mm. podcast. Yeah. And there's so many ways to get creative about making that happen. But then would it be? Because is it sustainable as a mm. human being? Certainly it would be sustainable, we think, because we don't do it Monday to Friday to clock in and do creative work all day long. There's musician friends that I have here in Tokyo who work very hard at making music their business. That's what they do every day in, day out. They do it. And sometimes they'll, if I'm talking to them about it, and it's like, well, you're living the dream. And it's like, actually, yeah, it's a job now. It's something I have to do to pay the bills. And it's not, sometimes it's not as enjoyable as it was when you were trying to eke out time to do it, playing a gig now and then here and there, trying to find the time to be creative. And it's at those times where those are like just golden moments throughout your week. So, Ooh, I managed to find a couple hours where I could sit down and work on that song or where it's not a job. If it does become that, like you're, you, if that's your nine to five, then it, maybe it loses some of the magic. I've changed my means of earning a living so many times in this lifetime. And that's one of the things that I'm consciously trying to remember as I'm reshaping yet again, that I've reinvented probably four or five times if I were to count them all. And it always seems to come back to this desire to live the more creative life. I'm not sure what that looks like 
going forward. But I know that it's becoming a more intuitive process in that writing every day has something to do with it. The podcast has something to do with it. And pulling my stories together into a memoir has something to do with it. And in the meantime, I'm just focused on the next step ahead. And that seems to bring it back down to a more genuine, authentic process. And the outcome seems to to resonate better. And so now that's the practice is like getting out of my head and which is like good luck because it's a labyrinth in there, but Mm. getting out of my head about it and just training myself to, to let it come through. And it's been, it's, it is like going to the, it's a different kind of gym, but it's, it's a whole different muscle. What you're Um, describing there, you could equate that to, to the alchemist as well, because the boy went through all kinds of different things. He was a shepherd. He didn't have a job. And then he found the crystal shop. Yeah. And then, and then he was wandering through the desert and then he was in love with the woman in the desert. And there's all these different things. But after he met the king, before he went to Africa, I'm going to, we're going to tell the whole story. <laughs> then, it's okay. Um, it doesn't ruin it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Then after he met the king, he said, so long as you have your personal legend if that's in if that's in your heart if that's the thing that you're striving for then it doesn't matter what you're doing because the universe is going to conspire to help you and and so you have your own personal legend in 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 mind maybe not in sight you have an idea of what it might be but perhaps that idea keeps changing but it's always there the the nucleus the the kernel of your personal legend is always there for me that's music doing music in some way as has been that like keeping that driving force going if for some reason i couldn't do music anymore i don't know what i'd do i would have to figure it out and probably it would be a, a really hard struggle to get through whatever it was i was doing but it would probably come back around again to music. I think that's one of the big takeaways. It might be every time, but somehow I I somehow just forget what's in there until I read it again. But one of the things that I took away from it as I was going through it this week was the reminder that we don't, it's different for everyone, that alchemy, that creative drive, that personal legend, that we're, there's a, a focus on us all being part of a greater whole, but yeah. we each own our own part. And, and so it's coming back through my filters right now as a tale of going back home to yourself in order to connect with your personal legend and how and what your alchemy in the world is how do you change whatever it is you're working with into gold Mm -hmm. yeah there's one thing that i found that really resonated this time because i've just finished reading it again as well was that although there are very christian ideas that pop up all over the place in the book it never mentions explicitly that it's a Christian ideal or that God or Jesus is a driving force or that sort of thing. It, it it touches on that very strongly at other at some points and very little at other spots as well. I, I suspect though that because I'm of a Christian background, those are the things that pop up for me. If if a Muslim person reads it, would they get more sort of Islamic 
pops instead or if a hindu person reads it would they be like boy that's a really interesting hindu kind of point that he brings up there does it is it different for people from different spiritual focuses i can only speak for for myself but what i'm seeing i definitely see the christian references because some mm. of them are some of them aren't they're not hidden no. there was one i don't know if i'll be able to jump to it easily but at the very end, the alchemist starts to tell a tale, and it's definitely something biblical and probably Old Testament. So mm-hmm. that includes Jewish text yeah. as well. There's in. definitely a prodigal son thing that happens too. At the beginning, he asks his father for money so he could go buy sheep, and then he does, and then he completely screws up and then goes all over the place and ends up back where he started. Growing up Catholic, I heard mm-hmm. about God and, and Jesus. Yeah. But I never heard about the universe, but the universe and universal language mm. are the overtones or undertones at least as strong as yeah. any Christian references. It's all told in this allegory yeah. of alchemy. And so I think that it really pushes on and addresses all kinds of different archetypes and universal ideas that resonate mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form as truth or calling to a person's spirit or soul. You get the sense that it's an old story, like it takes place a uh, hundred years ago or so. But when you're, as you're reading it, you don't really know. You know, because they're talking about alchemy and shepherds and old kind of antiquated ideas, but there are still shepherds these days. So it could well have happened last week, but it's not really, you're not really positive as to when the story takes place. So it's it's a timeless thing in that sense, in that people can read it 40, 50, 100 years from now, and it would still resonate. And the thing about the universe and this universal sort of spirituality, now that I'm delving into Zen, those sort of ideas resonated rather as opposed to a Christian or Catholic point mm-hmm. of view. But yeah, so it could resonate from any number of different spiritual paths. Absolutely. Before we start to close out, I would love to hear about your latest piece of alchemy and and how Sunrise in Reverse came into being. And I know that one of our friends from a long time was involved and creating in in 2020 and 2021, regardless of the the pandemic, affords different opportunities that didn't exist 20 years ago. So please, I've heard a little bit of it, but I'd love you to share. I'd love to share that, that. As I said, a couple of the songs that are on the record, I wrote seven years ago, like when the the album A Different River that I released back then, seven and a half years ago, near the end of that recording, I was still writing in that vein. And two or three of the songs I wrote back then, and they I've been they've been slowly evolving and coming together as them as their own beasts and and i've been performing them as well was it brother spirit water was one of them and uh, one more line the first song off the top of the record that one was written back then as well one more line is an interesting one i wrote it when i was 44 i've been 44 for a little while and in japan there are years that are auspicious and years that are bad luck for men and for women and they're different and 44 is a inauspicious year for a man because four in Japanese is yon or shi. 
and she is also the same sound. It's a different Chinese character, but it's the same sound that you make for death. That's why I think there's two words for four. It's yon or she, and because people don't want to say she very much or apply it to certain things because it's the same word for death. It's the same sound you make for the mm. word death. And 44 is like double death. So it's, that's not a good year. It's going to be bad that's luck for very you. very ominous, yeah. And I'd already been 44 for a little while, or a couple of months already. And, and I thought I was having a pretty good year so far, uh, being 44. I thought, it was doing, I thought I was doing pretty well. I thought, what's... I don't think maybe it's because I'm not Japanese. I don't know. But, and then I started started thinking about that. And there was also a Chinese tale that I was trying to work into a song at the time, which was the tale of the, of good luck or bad luck. Like something happens that everyone says, Ooh, that's good luck. And the person who it happened to is like, why don't we just wait and see? Mm -hmm. And then because that good luck happened, there's like a natural occurrence to something that could be termed bad luck. And then somebody's like, oh, that's horrible. That happened to you. It's such bad luck. And it's like, let's just wait and see. So the bad luck thing happened. And then the your life goes on from that point in a certain direction. And then good luck happens. So de depending on what's happening, people could call it good luck or bad luck. And I've never, from that, it reinforced an idea that I had that there isn't really any such thing as good or bad luck. It's just stuff that happens. And you just happen to be there when it happens. And the thing to focus on is how you how you react or how you respond to that situation can change something that you thought was good luck into bad luck or vice versa. And that's what that song ended up becoming. And that one's on the record. And I wrote that back when I did the other album. So there's a that song and Brother Spirit Water carried on through. And then I started to record them, actually, maybe a, about a year and a half ago. And I forgot. I had the spare afternoon and I put just some basic tracks down for some demos. I forgot that I had recorded them. When COVID happened, I sat down and looked through my computer and found all these recordings that I had done a while ago. And then I had a whole bunch of time to be able to really work on them because of COVID. A lot of the songs are really like these really intense inspiration moments. One of the songs, the 13 songs of the lark, I was one of those things where, again, I had to remain open. And this thing popped into my head of to do things on a lark. Or when people are as happy as a lark. Why are larks so much fun? What have they got going on that we don't know about? So I looked it up and read up about larks. There's lots about larks in poetry and mm. literature and lore. In England, several hundred years ago, they thought that larks' nests were sacred and you shouldn't disturb them. Um, and there's a Spanish poem about a prisoner who he's in prison because he falls in love with a queen and the king finds out because this guy's like a, a peasant or something, but he falls in love with the queen and she falls in love with him. But the king finds out and puts him in prison. And he's so deep down in this prison that he can't even see if it's day or night, but he can tell if it's day or night by the sound of the lark's song. He's mm. like, oh, a lark sings like this in the morning, so I know it's morning. And the lark sings like this in the evening, so I know it's evening. And also, another really neat thing is among bird keepers in China, larks are really highly prized because they, you can teach them how to sing uh, certain melodies. There's 13 different melodies that they try and teach them in a certain order. And if you can train your lark to sing these particular 13 melodies in a particular order, their value rises ast astronomically. 
And so there's these birders. And that's, these that's, bird for, real. that's, that's, that's for real. That's for real. That's for real. That's, that's not for real. a tale. That's fact. Like hobby stuff. Like people keep collect stamps. Other collect people larks collect larks who can sing in a certain larks, way. Larks who sing. And these guys will sit around in parks with their birds in cages and like, oh, listen to my lark. Yeah, he's got the first three, so I can teach him more. I don't know how they teach them. I have no idea. But they sit around and they talk about it. So that's what goes on with larks, too. And, and so I read up about... Illustri- all- illustrating cultural differences again. That's the thing. In Japan, too, people go crazy with their hobbies. Like, people in Canada will have a hobby. Okay, yeah. You go running or photography, that kind of thing. But people who do hobbies in Japan go whole hog. Like, you spend astronomical amounts of money outfitting yourself with the best gear of whatever it is that you're doing and they really get into it same thing in china apparently with birders and and so i read up about all this stuff about larks and i put on two hours of of bird song lark song on on youtube and i sat down with my guitar and just played music along with the bird song that I was hearing on the the video that I called up. And so that was a lot of fun. And that and then 13 songs of the songs of the lark came out of that. Oh, so there's cool. 13 lines, 13 separate lines and each line has its own bit of melody. So yeah, that When you put it together, mm-hmm. it was a bit of a cross continent project. It was. I was asking some friends to lend a hand with the recording. The trumpet, the trumpet part in The Man from Tomorrow was played by Aaron Sharp, who is the trumpet player in Jimmy Binks and the Shakehorns band I was in before. And the bass played on a few tracks is by a friend of mine here in Tokyo, Ayumi Sato. Uh, I played a couple of times with him in different bands and stuff, and he's a fabulous bass player. But also I needed some drums. And it was just over a year ago that... Our friend, Kevin White, had some surgery and he came through it in good health and it was fabulous to hear. But because of that, I got back in touch with him a lot more than I had been. Before then, I'd been in touch with him maybe once a year. But I really got in touch with him after that happened because of because of the surgery that he'd gone through and the therapy that he was going through. And I just wanted to help him out and keep in touch with him and see what was going on. And just get back in touch with a friend because he was a great friend of mine in in high school. And ever since then, we never really lost touch. But our contact up to a year ago was few and far between. And I needed some drums. And of course, he's a drummer. I mentioned to him that I needed some drums on a couple of tracks. And why can't we do it over the internet? I'll send him the tracks and because he has a studio music works in Sudbury. He played some drums and he helped he helped me out with some some engineering. He mastered the whole thing. And all of that was therapeutic for him. His doctors were saying, yeah, that's fantastic that you're able to do this because it's really going to help you. I was really glad that we could reconnect in such a meaningful way. And he was helping me and I was helping him. And so, yeah, that was uh, a really cool part of the process. That just makes me, me all... Warm and fuzzy inside and to see that interconnectedness and, and yeah. how beautiful that is to be able to create together from yep. around the world and at a time where it was mutually beneficial. It's really magical. Mm. Uh, so, Johnny, if uh, listeners want to go and check out your music, where can we send them? You can go to Bandcamp. Just search Johnny Barefoot at Bandcamp, one word, Bandcamp, 
And the cool thing about Bandcamp is you can listen to the album in its entirety, I think up to three times before they say, you've listened to this a whole bunch. Why don't you show this musician some love? And mm-hmm. and then they ask that you buy it. But you can listen to it. I think it's about $10 Canadian. I said it at a thousand yen. But that's another cool thing about Bandcamp as far as helping out musicians and stuff is that's a thousand yen or $10 Canadian is where the price starts. If you want to pay more, you have that option. Mm. And 40%, I think, a quick little statistic for Bandcamp, 40% of customers who buy something off of Bandcamp will pay over and above the asking price of the album. I will make sure that there's a link to your Bandcamp in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for staying up late with me on a Thursday evening in Japan. And it was bright and early here in Toronto. Yeah, um, I think pleasure. the sun's coming in there. It, now, it is it? now full on to the, the yeah. southern facing window. Yeah. The sun has risen as we've been here, which which yeah. ties in beautifully to Sunrise in Reverse. Just a couple words before we sign off. Sunrise mm-hmm. in Reverse, what's the meaning? That's the last song on the album. And I got the idea of thinking there isn't really a new sunrise or a new sunset every day. There's always just the same one that rolls around the earth and comes back around to us. There's this event horizon that just keeps going and keeps going. And a sunrise could be, if you turn around and look the other way, a a sunset in reverse or a sunrise, a sunset in reverse, sunrise in reverse. It depends on your point of view. Also, that's the chorus of that kind of uh, brings home that sort of notion. And then through that, I think, so there's that connection where they could be one or the other, sunrise or a sunset. And then also matter and light and color and all these different waves of experience can be the same kind of thing. And they're all sort of connected. Uh, is uh, And that's, that's that song, uh, where that song comes from. Well, is a, a, conne- that- a connection of matter and, and light and, and color and uh, sunrises and sunsets being the same thing, uh, depend- just depending on your point of view. What a wonderful note to bring this conversation to a close on. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for a heartfelt conversation. And here we are connecting yeah. with the sunrise coming up here. It's already gone down where you are. Yeah, and the moon is up. Now I think if I can, the moon is up. Yep. And And thank uh, you for asking me, Laura. Thank you for, uh, and and I'm really glad that we kept this idea alive, that we could do this. And thank you for being here. I know you've got a ton of choice in the podcast universe. If you found this conversation or other episodes of For Your Inner Guru to be valuable, I have a request. There's three things that help a podcast grow. The first is when you tell other podcast listeners about For Your Inner Guru and spread the word. The second is when you subscribe on your podcast app or at freeyourinnerguru.com. And the third is when you leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to actively support the podcast, please visit freeyourinnerguru.com where you can shop the t-shirts, hoodies, and notebooks, become a supporting patron, and learn more about the leadership community. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.